again to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we just sang, we, we want to lift our eyes to the heavens in hope of your coming and your return. We want to turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus. Remind us, I pray, of why we were made, of why you put us here on this earth. To find our joy and our fulfillment and our purpose in life in knowing you and in representing you and living for you and enjoying you in the things that you have made <coughs> and putting you on display for others that they too may find their joy in you. Father, I pray that you would change us, shape us more and more to look like the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would use the sermon this morning towards that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, well if you would, open your Bibles. We are continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there will be this message and then next week uh, we'll finish up the chapter and maybe one or two on chapter 16, uh, one at least, two at the most, and then we will be on to what's next. And I will be very honest with you, I am torn right now. I know I've communicated to some of you that I'm thinking of doing Matthew, but I'm also wondering about the book of Acts, um, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus <laughs> through the Apostles. And so, Matthew and Acts. So here's, here's what I'm going to do, okay? Because I, I really, I really um, would love your, your feedback. I want you to think about it this week. Maybe read Matthew. Maybe I know Shirley can read Matthew. Maybe read, maybe read the book of Acts, right? And, and, and be thinking about it. I, there's various reasons that I'm leaning either, either one, but I'm, I'm really torn. So, so next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say uh, Acts or Matthew. And we'll say Acts first, and that is, we'll do a show of hands. And Because uh, honestly, I'm a 50-50. They're both awesome. I could go either way. So... I would love your feedback, and I'm gonna feed. I'm gonna feed the people what they ask for. So, um, and we will preach both in days to come. But which one gets to go first? That's the question. Both 28 chapters, so both would be a little while. All right, First Corinthians, First Corinthians 15, and I'm gonna read these verses for us, starting at verse 29. Paul writes this. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? 
And with what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It means it can't die. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is a, also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So we're going to work through this passage in three steps following Paul's own uh, logic or flow of thought as he works through these verses. In verses 29 to 34, Paul is going to be pleading with the Corinthians, come back to your senses about the resurrection. And as support for his plea for them to wake up and come to their senses, he's going to basically say in these verses, if the resurrection is not true, then the way that Corinthians and Corinth and the way that he himself is living makes no sense. So only the resurrection being true can make sense of the way that Christians in Corinth, at least some of them, and Paul is living his life. People look at the way these Christians are living and say, that only makes sense you would live that way if Jesus is really raised. Okay, so that's what's going on in verses 29-34. So first, the resurrection of the body makes sense of the Christian life. That's our first point today. Second, in verses 36-44, to 44, Paul is going to spell out for us a foolish objection that some have raised about how resurrection is just impossible, or it doesn't make sense. And he's going to give two illustrations from nature. To help the Corinthians see that this concept of a resurrected body is not foolish, but actually really pretty reasonable that dead bodies would come back. So the second point, nature itself shows us that to be raised with a different kind of body is reasonable. It makes sense, not nonsense. And then third, in verses 45 to 49, the last little bit we'll look at today, Paul you can see how he starts off with the word so. 
in verse 45. So he's drawing an inference from the things that he's just said. So, or therefore, because the, because the re resurrection is perfectly reasonable, so scripture holds forth Adam and Christ as two types of bodies, earthly and spiritual. And that's a reasonable thing. So, um, and, it, and it's certain. We, we saw Adam was a real person. Christ was a real person. Adam had a real fleshly body because he's our forefather and we have bodies that are fleshly like him. Jesus had a real resurrection body. When he rose, we saw him. He really was. So the, the, the final third thing that he musters to try to help the Corinthians understand the resurrection thing is say, look, the resurrection is also, not only does it make sense of the way Christians live, not only is it perfectly reasonable given the way nature uh, has examples of things dying and then transforming into different realities, like a seed dies and a tree comes out of it. Um, resurrection makes sense when you look at nature. Resurrection is certain when you look at Adam and when you look at Christ, this transformation. So that's a flyover of what's going on here. I'll say these together. First, the resurrection of the body makes sense of the Christian life. Second, nature shows us to be raised with a different kind of body is reasonable. It's not bizarre. And then third, the example of Adam and Christ show that the resurrection is certain. So the main idea, it's on the back of your bulletins, the resurrection makes sense, is reasonable, and is certain. Those are Paul's you got 20 verses. That's what he's saying. So, first, the resurrection of the body makes sense of the Christian life. Verse 29, we read Paul. And, and here, what Paul's doing in these verses, it, if you're trying to convince somebody of something, and you really care about it, you're going to present them with every possible argument that you can. Some of them are going to be stronger than others. And this is an argument that isn't maybe as strong as hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after he was dead. <laughs> but this is the argument that Paul is going to muster among many, so that in the 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 that he throws at them, it just adds itself to the weight of what he's saying. There, let's look at verse 29. He says, now if there is no resurrection, um, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So, hear what Paul is saying. He's saying there are Christians who are doing something. They're being baptized for the dead. Whatever that means. And if dead people aren't raised someday, then it makes no sense for them to do that thing that they are doing. This particular practice of being baptized for dead people, uh, whatever this practice was, um, it would be nonsense, according to Paul, without a sincere, real belief in the real resurrection of dead bodies. So, what is the practice of being baptized for the dead. I'm glad you asked, or maybe wondered. Maybe you're like, what is that? One Bible commentator that I use, his name is Roy Siampa, I think. 
Chiampa, I don't know, it's uh, C-I-A-M-P-A, Chiampa. He writes this, helpful commentary, but he writes, the first verse of this passage is undoubtedly the most difficult verse to interpret in the whole letter with over 40 different interpretations. Yikes, right? You read 2,000 years of church history, there's over 40. Andy Nicelli, another commentator I use, um, says there's 200. That's a lot more than 40. So I don't know who's counting and who's, how you include, maybe, maybe somebody's just lumping, these are all similar, so we'll call it one or something. I, I don't know how you count these things. Um, maybe somebody did more research than the other person and dug up more ways of understanding it. Um, so this passage is very difficult to understand because we don't really have anywhere else where this language is used. Not just in the Bible, but in the early church fathers and the writings of the early church. It's like this being baptized for the dead. What does it mean? So we don't have time to go into any of these 40 different ways, really, that people, or more, have scratched their heads about this passage. However, there is one thing. You say, man, who's right? Well, the vast majority of Christian interpreters actually agree on what the verse doesn't mean. So that's helpful. They all say, we don't know for sure, but we know it's not that. Okay? And here's what it does not mean. It does not mean you could have a loved one who died and wasn't baptized, and then you could go be baptized on their behalf, as if your baptism would count for your unbaptized loved one. Most, most Christian interpreters in the Bible say that's not what Paul's talking about here. For example, imagine the thief on the cross, right? That story, he believed in Christ, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, in heaven with God. He didn't have an opportunity to be baptized. So imagine in the history of the early church, Jesus is raised from the grave. Imagine his mom becomes a Christian 10 years later. And she starts to, you know, I'm making up a story, but she starts to say, man, you know, Billy, he was not baptized. And I'm really concerned about that. Maybe he really won't be in paradise with Jesus. I'll be baptized for the dead. I'll, I'll, I'll get baptized for him. And I got baptized for myself last month. I'll get baptized for him this month. And it's like a vicarious baptism, a baptism that counts for him. Okay? There are some who have thought maybe that's what this says. But that would be something totally unheard of in any of the rest of the writing of the Bible or in the practices of the early church that we have record of. Most agree that that's not what it means. Um, the word for could mean that. It could mean being baptized on behalf of somebody else. In other words, if this was all we had to go on, and the Bible says nothing else about baptism being a personal decision to have put your faith in Jesus, if this verse was the only thing we had to go on, it, it could mean on behalf of somebody. But the word for, the word for, so like I can say, I took a bullet for you, right? We could use the word for that way. But the word for 
Can you have other meanings? It could mean, and this is the way many translators and Bible interpreters think what, what it means. It means, for could mean on account of the dead, or because of the dead. So one um, way, this is a very common way, and this would be my opinion for, for what's going on here. People in Corinth and around the ancient world of Paul's day, they've heard the gospel message about their dead friends who are going to be raised. These people have fallen asleep in Christ, but they are going to be raised from the dead one day because they were baptized into Christ by faith. And so when they hear about, let's say, their grandma and their grandpa who trusted in Christ and had died two years ago, they were baptized. They trusted in Jesus. They are going to be raised bodily. Um, then they hear that, and they hear the good news about that, and they want that hope too. And they want to be resurrected too. And because of, on account of hearing about their baptism and their hope of resurrection on account of the dead and the hope of being raised with the dead, because of that, they say, sign me up for Jesus as well. I want to be a part of that. So on account of my dead loved ones or dead friends that I have heard have trusted in Jesus, on account of them, I want to be baptized as well. And maybe... There was a practice that we're not aware of, but maybe people were saying at their baptism ceremonies, I'm being, I am being baptized on account of Brother Stephen, who was stoned and had the hope of resurrection. And because of him, I'm going through the waters too, because I want to be raised with him. His on account, it is, account, it is on account of that dead person that I am standing here putting my hope in the resurrection as well, which is what baptism pictures, right? Going through the waters of judgment and they don't hurt you. You come out alive on the other side of death. That's what baptism pictures, is resurrection. And so being baptized for the dead, in my view, and the view of, I would say, the majority of Evangelical. That doesn't mean it's right, but that, that's the majority of um, kind of our team, people that would teach the Bible like we do, would, would mean that way, that that's what it means. But there's still room for head-scratching. All right. Why is Paul using this as an argument here? Well, he's saying that this practice that the Corinthians are doing, being baptized on the account of the dead... Um, being baptized on account of the dead, it wouldn't make sense if there was no resurrection. Why would you be baptized in the hope of resurrection on the account of you know, somebody else you know, if, if they're not going to get raised? If, if they've fallen asleep in Christ, why be baptized in the hope that they're gonna, you're going to be raised with them if the dead are not raised? It doesn't make sense. This Christian practice doesn't make sense. 
All right. Now, Paul is going to say something else that doesn't make sense as well. He says, look at verses 30 to 32. As for us, now he says, I'm going to use something I do and my friends do. As an example, if the resurrection wasn't true, what we're doing it just doesn't make sense. He says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and there is a reference to uh, most likely not lions. We don't have any record of Paul fighting lions in the arena, because then he'd probably be dead. But wild beasts would be all the opponents of Christianity, these wicked, beastly men that he fought and uh, that had it out for him. I, if I fought them with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here's what Paul's saying. He says, I choose and chose to live a life constantly on the edge of death. I put my body at risk every single day for Jesus. I go every day all out for the cause of telling people about the Lord Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of the body, I'm just wasting my time. The way I'm living doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection. The way Peter lived, the way Jesus lived, doesn't make sense. If there's no resurrection of the body. He tried to get himself killed. By going to Jerusalem when he knew they would kill him. That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that if there's no resurrection? The doctrine of the resurrection. If this is all that's, there is for the body. The doctrine of the resurrection of these bodies. Helps make sense of radical sacrificial living for Jesus because we will get our bodies back after we've spent them for the Lord. Amen. But if the resurrection is not true, then we should just eat and drink and satisfy all our earthly pleasures possible today because tomorrow we're going to die. That's it. Nothing left for the body. That's the way of the hedonist. But the way of the Christian is different. The way a Christian lives makes no sense if there's no resurrection. Just like the way Jesus lived made no sense if he didn't have a rock-solid hope that the Father would not abandon, Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, right? Nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Then Paul says, verses 33 to 34, do not be misled, guys. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Come back to your senses. The Christian life doesn't make sense the way that you're starting to think about it, says Paul. Who have you been hanging out with? The greatest danger to someone's faith as a Christian is not hanging out with lost people, actually. It's hanging out with Christians who deny the resurrection by the way they live for this world. 
start to erode your hope in Christ, your confidence in Christ. Oh, they're living like that and they follow Jesus? Maybe it's okay for me to live like that, too. Paul says, come back to your senses. Don't be misled. If we lose all hope for the future of the body, the hope of resurrection, it has consequences. We'll either start treating the body like it doesn't matter at all and pursue every earthly pleasure we can because you know you only live once, so better max it out in this life. Or on the opposite extreme, we might just treat our bodies terribly, abusing them with too much sugar and junk and refusing to care about them or value them as precious. Who cares about this ratty old thing? Jesus is going to get me some new wheels anyway. That's not the way Christians think about the body. We care about the body because Jesus does. How do I know Jesus cares about your body? He's going to raise it. That's how much he cares about it. Yes, he's going to give you some improvements. We'll talk about that in a minute. Your new body ain't going to die. That's an improvement. It isn't going to grow weak and tired and weary. It's a spiritual body. Doesn't mean it's not a physical body. It's going to look similar, but it's going to be different. And yet Jesus cares about the physical. And so a resurrection, it shapes how we care for our bodies, how we view our bodies, how we view each other, and how we view the world now. The way Christians are called to live, not always the way we live perfectly, but the way that we are called to live, only makes sense if Jesus is going to raise their bodies. Now, that's, so that's Paul's main argument. And first he says, you're right, here's a practice you're doing, and here's the way I live. Both things only make sense if Jesus is going to raise us. And now, the second thing Paul mentions, verses 35 to 44, two illustrations from nature to basically say that resurrection is a sensible and reasonable teaching. So nature shows us that to be raised with a different kind of body is reasonable. So here's a question that Paul starts out. It's posed to Paul by a hypothetical person in Corinth, it's probably a question, maybe it's a question Paul knows somebody asked it, or maybe it's just a question he's heard some people say. He says, but someone, so again, maybe he's thinking someone, yeah, that would be Claudius, uh, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, the way that Paul responds to this, I want you to look really careful, by saying, oh foolish person, that indicates this isn't really a genuine curiosity question. <laughs> Tell me more about this resurrection. You foolish person. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. It's, it, it's more of an objection, I think, to the whole concept that God is going to raise dead bodies. It's, it's along the lines of this. Resurrection doesn't make sense, Paul. Bodies decay and disappear. Are you really saying dirt is going to become flesh again? Like, we dug up Grandpa accidentally, and it was just dirt and bones. But with what kind of body is he going to come back if 
Now he's pushing up flowers. Like what? You know, it's a, it's a, it's the question has doubt in it. It has skepticism in it. And we can see that because of Paul's response. You fool. You're not looking at nature. You're, you're just looking and you're seeing dirt. But look, look at nature a little more closely. Nature itself, says Paul, indicates this isn't crazy. Verse 36. What you sow, you know, you sow seed, right? It doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And you don't throw an apple tree at the ground. You throw an apple seed at the ground. But God gives it a body as he determined and to each kind of seed, he gives its own bite. Watermelon seed turns into a watermelon plant. And then a watermelon. An apple seed turns into an apple tree. God designed that. He gives it a body as he determined. If you had a, knew nothing about farming at all, and you'd never seen a seed before in your life, and you had a bag filled with a thousand different kinds of seeds, you're going to think, and you don't even know what a seed is, right? It's like, almost looks like dirt. Like, what is this stuff? If I plant it, what's it going to turn into? You would never, in your wildest imaginings, imagine this, this brown, black, grayish bag of tiny, pebbly, dirt-like, powdery things that look dead would explode into a jungle of massive wildlife. I mean, you would never, if you didn't know that already, you would never, never in a million years guess it. And we're not even going down to the microscopic level, right? And saying, human seed, an egg. You would never guess that that would turn into a human if you were just looking at this little thing under a microscope. Little embryo. Just started. Alright. So Paul says this idea that you plant the seed and you harvest fruit from it, that the, the, the husk wilts off and dies. I mean, you ever accidentally dug out the seed that you planted and it kind of looked dead? Sometimes maybe it is, it rotted. But it looks like it dies. And from the dead seed husk, its new life springs up. Planting seeds and harvesting fruit from them is God's picture that he infused into nature of resurrection. God is the one who determines what will spring forth from the seed, from the husk. And he's the one who designed the different types of flesh of a seed, and a wheat, and the kernel, from the kernel to the, the full fruit that comes from it. So now Paul's going to make another move in his analogies. So he's, the first picture is like, you don't think a dirt body can become something else more glorious? How about look at a seed, right? It looks dead for all intents and purposes. And then it becomes an oak tree, right? That, that's amazing. Now he makes another move in his analogies from nature, arguing for the reasonableness of resurrection. He said, verses 39 to 41, and, and not all flesh is the same. P 
People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies. So he emerged, moves from earth to, to the skies. And he says, and by bodies, he doesn't mean bodies of flesh, but the, the bodies of the heavens, the, the, the massive objects that were moving around up there. The star has one kind of splendor. And the moon another. One is closer. One is further. One is brighter. One is not. Star differs from star in splendor. Even in nature, Paul's argument is, there's different types of materials that compose different bodies. Even the stars look different from each other. If God can design the white, flaky, flake, not flaky, flaky flesh of a fish and the deep red flesh of a cow on a cheeseburger and the white grainy meat of a turkey, all different. What's to say he cannot raise humans from the dead with a type of flesh unbeknownst to us yet? That's what Paul concludes next. See the word so at the beginning of verse 42? His Paul, his conclusion from his analogies of seeds changing into something different after being planted in the hospital dying, and also his analogy that, hey, there's different types of bodies that God makes. So he says, verses 42 to 44, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is a body that dies, flesh that is susceptible to death and decay, just like the husk of a corn seed. It looks dead, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. What do you mean by that? Well, the human bodies are sown, we bury people in dishonor. It is a shame that we have to die. It is a shame for the glory of humans to be laid in a tomb. Death is not a glorious thing. And yet, it's not the final word. The body, says Paul, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. You can't get more weak than death. Right? Think of how weak a little acorn from an oak looks like in the palm of your hand. Pretty weak. Then when you put it in the ground and the husk dies off the kernels, it looks dead. But there is a mighty power at work inside it. It is sown in natural body. It is sown in weakness, Paul says, it is raised in power, verse 44. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So natural bodies and spiritual bodies. That's the way Paul describes the difference between the bodies that belong to the first creation, that we're part of right now, and the bodies that will be raised when Christ appears and ushers in the new creation, of which he himself is the first fruits. He was raised first. Remember, he's the first tomato, which, by the way, my tomatoes have started to turn red, which is awesome. Jesus is the first one that turned, which means the rest are coming. Jesus is the first one to get his new body, spiritual body, bodies that the Spirit of God creates. Now, hear, hear, hear me closely. These are not ghostly bodies. They are solid. Christ had one. And he ate fish 
on the beach with his disciples after the resurrection. Remember that, because that's important for people thinking, well, maybe Jesus was a ghost. No, he actually ate fish. Spiritual does not mean non-physical. I'll say that again. A spiritual body does not mean a non-physical body. That's really important. Perhaps, as C.S. Lewis once described, the resurrected spiritual bodies that we will inhabit one day will be more solid than even the earthly bodies that we now call home. So solid, so real, that they could do what the body of Jesus did post-resurrection, move through this world as if it was a shadow. Move through walls. Not because he's a ghost and less solid, but because he is more real and more solid, more physical, however you want to say it, than the walls of this creation itself. Raised in glory. So not only does the resurrection make sense of the way Christians are living, the resurrection itself also makes sense when we view the way that God himself put the world together with different types of bodies. The same creator will follow a similar pattern for raising bodies and for the new creation. But there's one final point Paul makes that we to look at. Point three, the example of Adam and Christ show that this transformation of one type of body to another is certain. Because it happened in space, time, and history. Look at verses 45 to 49. So it is written. The word so is the word thusly, or in this manner. It's pointing back to the things Paul has been talking about. That it makes sense that there's different, part, this, different kinds of bodies. And so, thus, in this manner, Paul says, you can see it play out, these different bodies in the story of Adam and Christ. When you, when you look at these stories, you can see a natural body and a spiritual body. So the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Here Paul quotes from Genesis 2, verse 7, where the Bible says Adam became a living being. That's why the NIV has that in quotes there. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now again, to be a life-giving spirit doesn't mean that Jesus is this disembodied ghost floating around watching you. It means he has a heavenly spiritual body raised by the Spirit, and he gives life to everyone who hears him and turns to him in faith. This life-giving Adam is in contrast to what Paul has been saying about the first Adam in verses 22 to 23. Look back down at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. If you look right back down, it says, What does the first Adam bring? Death. In Adam all die. The man of dust brought death. Christ, the last Adam, brings life. He is a life-giving Adam. Now, I just want to point out something here before we look at verses 46 to 49. Look at verse 45. Paul does not call Jesus the second Adam. You notice that? Sometimes people will talk about Adam 
There's the first Adam, and Jesus is the second Adam. There's even, I think, some songs that say, come second Adam. It's important that we see here Jesus is the last Adam. Okay? That's because all throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple times that different human beings are held forth by the authors of the Bible and by God himself as many pictures of Adam. They're like Adam figures. Okay? Can you remember any of these? Shout them out. Moses. Who, Moses. Moses is one. How about Abraham? Who was the first one? Genesis 6. Noah. Noah. Noah's like the biggest one. That's one of the most obvious. Um, we've gone over this. I don't have time to go give tons of proof, but you start seeing connections to Adam all over the place. The story of Israel as a nation. Israel is actually probably the biggest one next to Noah. Israel as a nation is a corporate Adam. As a nation, they are supposed to go back to Eden, this promised land, and be fruitful and multiply and enjoy God's blessing and not fall to the temptations of the devil. And they fail. Like Noah failed. And like Moses and like Abraham, dying outside the land, Moses and Abraham. Each Adam fails, but Jesus, the last Adam, in a long stream of train wreck Adams, including King David, the son of David, saves them all. He is the last Adam, facing temptation in the wilderness and saying no by the word of God, right? He does not fail right to the end. He brings life, and he brings us back, not just to Eden, but to Eden 2.0. Eden restored. The mountain of God that was Eden becomes the whole earth at the end of the Bible as God's presence fills all things. So, verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. In other words, Adam came first, then Jesus. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man of heaven. Right? Folks wonder, like, what does it mean that God created a human out of the dust? Is that just figurative? or No, I think that's real. Because guess what you really turn to when you die? Dirt. Um, and so, dirt bodies is what we have right now. And yet, Jesus was given a dirt body, but then he was raised with a spiritual body. As was the earthly man, verse 48, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, or the Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So Paul here, he's saying that everyone who's connected to Adam, all of us bear the image of Adam. We were born after his image and his likeness. We read in Genesis 5, Adam gave birth, well not Adam, he gave birth, Adam had a son in his own image, a guy named Seth, after his likeness, and so on and so forth. All of us bear the image of Adam. We're earth creatures. Adam came from the dirt of the ground. God made a little clay model and breathed life into it. And so, we will also bear the image of the last Adam, Jesus, the heavenly man, 
And we shall be raised like the heavenly man and receive a resurrected body like the heavenly man and be perfect and reign in life one day with the heavenly man, Jesus, for eternity. For Paul, the resurrection from the dead is certain because Adam certainly lived and Jesus certainly lived again. So whoever's connected to Jesus will be raised. That's Paul's logic here. So as we conclude, we've seen the resurrection of dead human bodies makes sense of the way we're supposed to live as Christians. It's reasonable when you look at the way the world works that God would do something. He would make a new kind of flesh. Spiritual. And then it is certain in the lives and stories, the true stories of Adam and Christ couple ways this applies to us. First, I want to ask, does the resurrection make sense of the way that you are choosing to live your life right now? Are you living your life as if this life is it? As if you've got to max out your pleasure and get all you can out of this life? Or are you seeking to spend and be spent for others and put your hope in the resurrection, to invest as much as you can in the resurrection, to use the joys and the pleasures of this earth, which are real and given as great gifts, to fuel your love for the resurrection. How does this work for me in the mountains, right? I mean, in the mountains, it's like, man, what a beautiful view. And it awakens longing in your heart for something better. Think about it. Like, I'm standing on the Tongue Mountain Range, and it's gorgeous, and you're looking out, and it's beautiful, and you realize French and Indians stood where I'm standing, killing other human beings. And their bones are probably in these woods. <laughs> that ain't going to be like that in the new creation. There will be no beauty. The, the pleasures of this earth can fuel hope for a better world, just as you hold a little acorn and you hope for an oak tree. How are we living? The hope of resurrection helps us remember we are called to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Put all your chips in the resurrection. Second, does the resurrection of the human body seem reasonable to you? When we look at the world, there are many things that undergo powerful transformations after appearing to go dormant or die. Take, for example, all our lungs over the last few weeks. <coughs> Turning brown, and then at least my lawn is looking better. Some cooler weather, but it looked Deader than dead a few weeks ago. But under the surface, there was power waiting for God to say, ring, <laughs> and cooler weather. A monarch caterpillar leaves a cocoon for itself and goes in and looks like it's dead for weeks. And then 
Verse 4, beautiful splendor. The same body get transformed, metamorphosized into a sky creature. The smallest acorn goes into the ground, shell rots off, and then, given time, turns into a mighty oak tree. All pictures around us, everywhere, this world is infused with pictures of resurrection by our resurrecting God. And he wants us to look at them that way. The resurrection of the body is completely reasonable when we consider God's design pattern in the creation. And the final thing, the resurrection is certain. The resurrection is certain. Our own future resurrection is as certain as the raised body of Jesus. It is going to happen. That's our promise. That's our future. That's our hope. The hope of resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith. One tomb stands open. And so am I. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. I ask that you would stir up our hearts this morning with hope in the risen and reigning Christ. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. We hate death. Just like Jesus hates death. Just like Jesus wept at death when he raised his friend Lazarus. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies. Help us to put all our chips in the resurrection, Lord. To go all in with our hope there even as we live in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.